Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello. It's spring here in Kentucky, and in keeping with that spirit, we thought we'd talk about debut works for this month's podcast. We've got some great recommendations to share with you, so I'm going to jump right in with my first. It's a book that came out earlier this year, and it's written by Tom Miller called The Philosopher's Flight. I received a copy of this book as an advanced reader's copy, and from the description, I had have to admit that I was a little bit worried. It's a historical fantasy set in World War I America, where magic and science have blended so that certain people called philosophers can fly, summon the wind, shape smoke, and heal the injured. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? However, the philosophers are almost exclusively women. Men are just naturally not as capable or talented in this story. To be completely reductive about the plot, it's essentially a gender-flipped tale of a woman trying to join the Air Force, but in this case, it's about a man trying to join an elite, all-female, flying medic squad. As a woman who lives in the world that we live in, I think I was rightly worried that Miller wouldn't be able to pull it off in a way that wasn't either benignly ham-fisted or actually harmful. I'm glad to report that I was pleasantly surprised by the book. It's a smart, fun, wonderful story with characters that are both male and female that are indeed three-dimensional. Miller is able to expose a lot of the sexist nonsense that goes, that goes well beyond the usual hazing and insults that you might expect. I couldn't put it down and I wanted to, I kept wanting to read on and see what happened next. It's a fast moving story and I really enjoyed it. That sounds like um, it would have fit in with our March theme as well. Yeah, yeah. Strong women. <laughs> yeah, well, it would have, except that the main character's male, so I didn't right. want to use it. Yeah, that's true. For that. There are a lot of strong female characters in it, though, um, and that really, you know, it it makes the story more successful because of that. It could have been, like I said, ham-fisted um, if it was just about a dude trying to, you know, overcome obstacles on his way to success, but the characters are pretty well developed. The The guy in it is um, a likable guy. <laughs> um, and there's just a lot about, you know, the, the premise of it that uh, the author is able to work with and, and expose, like I said, a lot of sexist nonsense um, that I was even surprised that he pulled some things out. Like, I, I wouldn't have considered those necessarily to be that common or that noticeable but when it happens in this setting to a man by you know done to him by women it was like oh yeah that is terrible <laughs> so what do you can you think of some examples I'm, I'm trying to as I was saying it um one of the things that is included in the plot is um the way that they're able to fly is they use special harnesses that they wear and because he's a man and he is built bigger than most women that are flyers, he has to have a specially made harness or mm-hmm. he has to cobble them together. Like when he first gets to school, um, the harnesses that he wears are homemade and 
the harnesses available at the school, none of them fit him. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like one of those very small things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think about. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other examples. There are plenty. I just can't call them to mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> On the spot. But um, like I said, it is, it's very fun. It's very funny. And it's, you know, kind of an adventure, go to school, learn how to fly thing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So do you have a recipe to go with that one? I do. Uh, When I went looking for the scenes where the characters eat out together, I I immediately got sucked back into the book so fast that it wasn't even funny. I was like, I looked down and was trying to read through it, and then I look up, and it's like 45 minutes later. (laughs) That's a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just very captivating. Um, Anyway, so... uh, about two hours later, <laughs> I went searching for a champagne cocktail to pair with the book, and I think I found a pretty good one. It's called the Black Velvet, which I found on Serious Eats. It smashes together the fancy New Englanders and their sparkling with the farm boy from Montana and his stout beer, along with some orange bitters and a peel for garnish. I was able to make it last night, actually, um, and I, I used West Six Cocoa Porter. Mm-hmm and some Prosecco, and um, as the recipe stated, um, it did basically taste like a chocolate orange. Interesting. A, a bubbly chocolate orange. And I, and I loved the way that the Prosecco made the porter a little less heavy, like it lightened it a little bit. Um, but I would warn you to go light on the orange bitters. I think mm-hmm. I added a little too much, and it was a little overpowering. Um, but just just a dash of orange bitters and um yeah it was really nice actually last night because it was still a little cold Mm -hmm. yeah it sounds weird yeah but um but when I think about it like the kind of beers I like are often kind of champagne-y so that would kind of make make any beer (laughs) champagne yeah it worked really well with the cocoa porter actually and that's what the recipe said that you know if you get a chocolatier beer Mm -hmm. um, you'll get that effect Um, and it worked really well with the west sixth so I, i would recommend it especially if it's a little chilly outside sounds great thanks So the first book I wanted to talk about is called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Catt. It's a slim but fierce book written in response to J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Catt notes in her introduction that, quote, Vance remakes Appalachia in his own image as a place of alarming social decline, smoldering and misplaced resentment, and poor life choices, unquote. To her... Vance is generalizing his own experience onto an entire region. Kat agrees that Appalachia has problems, but she is arguing for a more nuanced approach. She notes that, quote, there's not a single social problem in Appalachia that can't be found elsewhere in our country, unquote. Kat, a writer and historian from East Tennessee, doesn't just deconstruct Vance's arguments. 
she also takes issue with the mainstream media's coverage of Appalachia, particularly after the 2016 election, and discusses the history of what she calls strangers with cameras coming to Appalachia to report on poverty. Most importantly, Kat describes the Appalachia she knows, a place where ordinary people have historically fought for such issues as workers' rights, the environment, and even for the rights of inmates who are now held in state and federal prisons in the area. What you are getting wrong about Appalachia is scholarly but highly readable. Its length keeps it from being overwhelming. In fact, if anything, I found myself turning to the resources in the back so I could learn more. We live in a time when it is all too easy to hear only the voices we agree with, gathering news and opinions from our highly filtered social media news feeds without ever hearing opposing views. Kat raises one more voice from Appalachia, and I hope we'll all listen. And I know you read this book as well, right? I did, and I have many thoughts about it <laughs> that are all... I just want to give her a high five. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. Um, you definitely got it right when it is a fierce volume. There was a lot of fist pumping when I was reading it. <laughs> I was just I was just thrilled. Um, I think it's a great response. I didn't read Hillbilly Elegy, mm -hmm. so I can't speak to how accurate she is. But um, in the way that she presents her argument about the region and about the way the region is portrayed historically, I thought it was just brilliant. Um, I loved the way that she sort of looked at it through the photographer's lens and then also taking those photographs and looking at them as a historian to you know, understand why we think the way we do about Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it wasn't just... Yeah, I, I thought that was an interesting approach too. I mean, she gave history like history of um things like the blair mountain um war i guess is mm -hmm. what they called it but then she also showed it through the lens of these outsider cameras so even though it was so small there was there was just so much that was covered yeah yeah and i don't think you have to have read hillbilly elegy to I definitely something out of yeah, the book. Yeah, I didn't feel like I missed anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I know one of our other coworkers has read Hillbilly Elegy and also either is reading it or has finished it. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should contact him and see. Yes. See what he thinks. Yeah. Uh, um, because I, uh, I do feel guilty not having read it and commenting on this book, but I feel like I have read enough reviews from people who are from... Appalachia um, and have problems with hillbillyology that, um, you know, those reviews kind of made me not want to read it. Um, and certainly, yeah, and Kat's and, book and, does too. I definitely <laughs> don't want to read it still. Um, and yeah, and perhaps that is intellectually not great, but <laughs> I don't know if I care. That, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like, I don't know that I need to subject myself to that. I'd rather just read more great stuff written by people from the region. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it is. a. I, and I should also say I have read like essays that he's written online, but I haven't read 
haven't read the book, so I don't know. I can't really ask someone else to read this book if I haven't read Hillbilly Elegy, but there you go. If you haven't read Hillbilly Elegy, maybe you'd like to read If you're looking you're... for a different take on it, this would be a great place to get it. Absolutely. As far as recipes, this book made me think of one of the first books I talked about on the Books and Bites podcast, and that is Vittles, An Appalachian Journey with Recipes by Ronnie Lundy and with photographs by Johnny Autry. Vittles serves as a guidebook to the food of the mountain south, with essays, photographs, and recipes on Appalachian food traditions, as well as on contemporary Appalachian food. Many of the chefs and farmers that Lundy profiles reminded me of the people Kat writes about, people who defy stereotypes and are working to make Appalachia a better place. I have to admit that with their heavy reliance on meat and dairy, many of the recipes in Vittles are off limits for me. However, I still enjoy reading about the food, and the recipe, the Shack's Sweet and Savory Banana Pudding, caught my eye because it reminded me of my grandmother. My father and his family were from West Virginia and Southwest Virginia, and they always loved my grandmother's banana pudding. She made it with homemade vanilla pudding and topped it with meringue. The Shack's recipe is different, though, because it includes a savory banana bread made with red miso paste. Hmm. That sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. I, I tried it, um, and it it is really interesting. I love I love miso. It, yeah, it just me too. I just never would think to put it in bread. Yeah, and and it worked great. Um, it was really moist, and um, you know you had that hint of sweetness with the banana. And then what you do is layer breadcrumbs between the normal pudding and bananas and vanilla wafers, um, so you get this mix of the saltiness from the miso with the sweetness of the pudding. It's That sounds incredible. It, it's, pre, it's pretty great. I did have to make quite a few substitutions with the recipe, um, but I did make it. And um, I think that mix of the traditional with the saltiness of the miso makes it just the thing to pair with what you're getting wrong about Appalachia. Great. So this next book that I'm going to share uh, also came out earlier this year, and it's going to be tough because I have so much to say about it and not nearly enough time to say it. Um, I also have a master's in art history and studied the subject of the book, so I was kind of an ideal target for this particular book, and i got to say it it sucked me right in. Um, So it is called Blood, Water, Paint, and it's written by Joy McCullough. It's hands down, I know it's only April, but it's one of my favorite books to come out this year. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. I actually went out and bought it, and I'm a librarian, and I don't buy books. <laughs> so you got, yeah, like I pre-ordered it. It was a big deal. Um, so you know it's real. Um, I knew that as soon as I started reading it that I needed to put it down and wait until I was home and had enough time to sit and read the entire thing all at once. It's The novel tells the story of the real-life Renaissance painter named Artemisia Gentileschi, who was raped by her mentor when she was 17. 
Artemisia was a talented painter, and her father actually took her rapist to court and won. So a major reason that we know so much about her today is because not only did the transcripts from the trial survive, but a lot of her paintings have also survived. Um, and they were pretty good. So we, we know a lot about them, and she's one of the very few female artists from that time that is still studied today. Um, through an advantageous marriage after the trial, she was able to keep painting for many, many years. And McCullough brings to life the subjects of two of her most famous paintings, Susanna and Judith, both of whom have their stories told in the Apocrypha from the Bible. And they were both popular subjects in Renaissance art for reasons that are not the same as why Artemisia Gentileschi painted them. Um, they were often used as just sort of a a way to display nude female bodies, mm -hmm. um, even though their stories really don't require that. I guess Susanna does a little bit, but that's a whole nother, nother story. Um, so what the one of the reasons that I think the novel succeeds so much is because McCullough is able to weave together a conversation between Judith, Susanna, Artemisia, and Artemisia's mother, who died when she was 12. And that conversation allows McCullough to examine womanhood and growing up and dealing with tragedy through a variety of lenses. The result is a powerful read that doesn't let up. I, I couldn't put it down, and indeed I didn't. I read it all in one sitting. Wow. Um, most of it is in verse, uh, so it it moves really quickly. It's The verse sections are essentially Artemisia's thoughts and some of the dialogue that happens in this story, but um, it's really easy to just blow right through quickly. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I keep recommending it to everyone because I think, uh, you know, women can get a lot out of it and men can understand a lot about the female experience from it. I just, I think it's phenomenal. I didn't realize you had a master's in art history. As yeah, well. yeah, I did that uh, a while ago. <laughs> but I did focus on Renaissance art for my thesis. So um, Gentileschi was painting around the same time as Caravaggio. So she was a little bit after the Renaissance. But mm -hmm. um, I was particularly interested in her story. One, because I, I had read the Susan Vreeland wrote a novel Mm -hmm. called The Passion of Artemisia, and I had read that as a kid. I don't. This isn't particularly great children's literature, <laughs> but for some reason I, I came across it and I read it as a teenager. Um, but her story is is incredible, and the art that she created, you know, is is within that context. So the story, I don't know how far deep down the rabbit hole I should take us, but the story <laughs> of Judith in the Bible, for anyone that doesn't know, um, is she, long story short, she assassinates the general of a, an army that is trying to invade her town. And she does this by beheading him. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the paintings are very violent for the most part. Um, but like if you were to compare Caravaggio and Gentileschi, um, Caravaggio's Judith is very delicate mm -hmm. and dainty and like there's just a look on her face that is very much like this is gross. 
But if you look at Gentileschi's Judith, which she did several, um, mm-hmm. but her the main one that she's known for, you know, it's it's a very violent emotional image that is not like the compare. It's just unreal to see how different artists have depicted them over the years. Um, mm-hmm. And Susanna is the same. So I won't tell the story of that, but Susanna's story and the way that McCullough examines it in the book, it really blew my mind because I had never considered her story in the way that McCullough does. And I just was, I was floored. It was great. So even if, but I would also say that even if you don't have this background in art history, if you don't know who this person is before you pick up the book, there's still a lot to get out of it. And she does a really good job of walking the reader through all of that history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't be afraid to pick it up if you don't, you know, if you feel like you don't know enough. That's that's not the case at all. You can learn it too. So the recipe that I wanted to share with you all to go with Bloodwater paint comes from Rome, which is where the book is set. Um, and it happens to also be one of my favorite places in the world. Not just to be, but also to eat. Uh, the city is known for several pasta dishes, many of which feature the Roman sheep's milk cheese, Pecorino Romano. The cheese itself is Italy's oldest and is one of many food products that is legally regulated to ensure authenticity and quality. As Marcella Hazan wrote in her book, Ingredienti, the impact of Pecorino Romano can excite the palate. And a well-made example is exactly the cheese you want to cap the robust flavors of such Roman classics as a carbonara or an amatriciana. The pasta dish that best showcases its appeal is cacio e pepe, sauced with only a mound of grated pecorino romano that you loosen with a little pasta water as you toss it, and which you blanket with an exceptionally liberal fresh grinding of black pepper. You can find a recipe for cacio e pepe, which is an absolutely extraordinary dish, in Lydia's Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine by Lydia Bastianich. Uh, that sounds wonderful. I used I'm to really love sad you can't <laughs> eat it now. Pecorino, but Romano, but um, yeah, can't can't do that anymore. Um, but I also love Lydia Bastianich. She's wonderful. <laughs> She's wonderful. And Marcella has on that that little book. It's a really short little tiny book that she just talks about different ingredients in and it's really lovely Uh even it doesn't have hardly any recipes at all it's more just like do this sort of preparation with your asparagus or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but it is it's just a lovely little meditation on different ingredients Um, so that's great and then um, Lydia's Lydia's cookbook the one that um, I mentioned looked really great Mm -hmm. looked like she had some great stuff in there Thanks. So the next book I want to talk about, I think, also pairs really well with what you are getting wrong about Appalachia. And it's a debut book of poetry called The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded by Molly McCulley Brown. It's about one of America's dark secrets, the forced institutionalization and sterilization of people with disabilities, as well as others that eugenicists viewed as a threat to the white gene pool. 
In fact, Kat discusses this issue and what you're getting wrong about Appalachia, explaining that many mountain people were sent to the Virginia State Colony for epileptics and feeble-minded. Yes, that was the institution's actual name, including some who lived on land that the government wanted for Shenandoah National Park. The forced sterilizations at the Virginia State Colony began in the 1920s and may have continued into the 1970s. Poet Molly McCulley Brown grew up near the former Virginia State Colony. As a person with cerebral palsy, Brown grapples with the realization that she may have been sent there had she been born in an earlier time. Quote, I am my own kind of damaged there, she writes, of seeing the former colony. Spastic, palsied, and off balance, I'm taking crooked notes about this place. Unquote. Some of the poems explore Brown's relationship with her own body. Others mourn the loss of her twin sister, who died shortly after their birth. Most of the poems, however, take place in the 1930s and are told from the point of view of the people who lived and worked in the colony. The writing is spare and image-driven, the poems haunting and unflinching. In the poem The Convulsions Choir, the speaker, a patient, describes the church built for the staff, quote, as a refuge from the stench, the idiot, and the insane, unquote. She longs, quote, to take the hands of the other epileptic girls and lead them up toward the altar, humming and weaving our arms together like chains. It's particularly difficult to read the attitudes of the medical establishment at that time. In the poem, Without a Mind, a doctor describes his patients at the colony as, quote, useless approximations of live things littered on the bed as I make my rounds. Elsewhere, Brown includes fictional sterilization forms that she based on archived forms. The cold medical language contrasts sharply with the poems and the sterilized patient's point of view, making them even more heartbreaking. Quote, I will remember this day as the day I was cleaved from my body, says one such patient in the poem Cleaving. Whatever they did, I am the silt that slips between your fingers when you dredge for the bright things at the bottom of a pond, unquote. The Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded is one of those painful but also deeply necessary books. I recommend reading it slowly while sipping something warm and comforting. I consulted the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Cookery for some suggestions. According to a chapter on teas, quote, spring was the time to refresh the spirit and tone up the system with a tonic. Spicewood, sweet, sweet birch, and sassafras were common spring tonics, unquote. The book explains how to gather, prepare, and make your own tonics using these wild plants. It also suggests the more readily available fresh mint or white horse mint tea, which makes, quote, an exceptionally pleasant tea, unquote, as well as a good cold remedy. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. 
we'd love to hear your comments or suggestions, so feel free to email us at podcast at justpublib.org. We record in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can find out more about the library, our recording studio, and the books we talked about in this episode on our website at justpublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website at doorforadesk.com.